should be immediately obvious to you why I have an eight-foot-long two-by-four with me. And uh, what's probably not as obvious, even to those that are here, are some of the little splinters of wood that are here on uh, this stool. I think if we kept a list of some of the most common verses that are taken out of context, the one that began our reading today, verse 1, would no doubt be probably on the top of the list. Do not judge. It's often quoted even among those who are not followers of Jesus because it seems to fit this kind of spirit of tolerance. And what they are really saying is things like, well, don't judge me, or who are you to judge? Or don't you know that the Bible says? I mean, even Jesus said, do not judge. And so it becomes a popular verse or phrase in our time, probably because we pull it out of context, we misunderstand it, we misuse it, and then we abuse it. In fact, people use it to judge what they consider to be a judgmental attitude on the part of another. So what did Jesus mean when he said, do not judge? And when he used two forms of wood to illustrate what he meant, I find it interesting that Jesus, as a carpenter himself, would have been very familiar with planks and with specks of wood, beams of wood, or sawdust, or splinters. And you know those annoying slivers that you sometimes get when you work with wood? You see, only when we understand what Jesus meant can we then live this truth out and live it rightly. And so we're in this series on the Sermon on the Mount that we've called Living the Life. And, uh, and I have loved personally the, the chance to dive deep into some of these studies, and I know many of you have expressed that as well, about just the things that we're learning about how do we then live this Christian life? How is Jesus calling us to live? Now, before we go any further, I do need to just address something that happened last week. Um, if you were listening to the message closely, just as Pastor Adam was introducing his third point, he made the point about using alliteration. And, he's, and, he, and it was almost like he said, you know, like, uh, you know, don't judge me, please show me some grace. And, um, well, I took that personally. Um, because I do that a lot, right? I try to find some way of making it memorable. And, uh, and so, you know, the next day we had a conversation. And again, as I'm trying to um, present my point of view, um, Adam made it very clear where he stood. And so this is kind of how it played out. You can just see it here on the screen. Yes, silly, speculative, and subversive. I know if you weren't wearing masks, you probably would have laughed a lot louder and a lot longer than that. Because when I shared that with Adam, he pretty much spit his coffee out uh, as well. So that was good. But um, I said to him, I said, you know, like when we use those kind of things, the reason we do some of these things, I mean, it's a text of passage. And we don't want to like be cute about it. I get that. But for me, one of the things with alliteration is it helps remember, like, okay, well, he used four, wor- four W words, and he said, you know, do not worry what? Worship. Do not worry wonder. Do not worry walk with Jesus. Do not worry wait. Like, it, it's a tool to help mem- us remember the Scripture sometimes and to learn from it. And so I don't have a very cute 
outline this morning, um, and I really struggled with this, but it kind of came to me, and see if by the end you can't figure out what I did, and, uh, and hopefully you'll, uh, you'll have something to remember this morning. So let's get on with it. The principle that Jesus talks about here first. Verse 1, do not judge or you too will be judged. And the important thing for us to do right off the bat then is to define this word judge. What, what does it mean to judge? And the Greek word used here in Matthew is krino, which means to condemn or to judge harshly, harshly or to sit in a place of superiority in order to condemn. And several commentators use this word censorious. And honestly, I'd never heard that word. I thought, well, this is unique. What does it actually mean? And so I had to look it up in the dictionary. Maybe it's common knowledge and I'm just left out in the dark. I mean, I am an English as a second language student anyways. And so maybe I didn't learn this uh, word when I should have. But the word censorious is actually a really powerful word. The definition of it is being hypercritical. Or if, you, if somebody is censorious, they have a critical spirit. That there's a negative and destructive fault-finding focus in their lives. It really means that we're condemning someone for their motives. <clears throat> and if someone is censorious... They probably are also self-righteous, egotistical, unmerciful. Now, who in biblical times does that describe? It's the Pharisees. And so when Jesus is using this word, he's making a deliberate point to say to those that practiced judgmentalism as being wrong. And so Jesus says, don't do that. Don't condemn another person. But there is another meaning to judge that helps us understand what Jesus is getting at through the rest of the verses. It means simply to discern. You see, we often will find ourselves in a place where we need to discern, where we need to judge one thing against another. And there is an absolute place for discernment in our lives. And in order for us to discern, we then need to be able to judge. We need to be able to judge, to, or to discern between right and wrong, between good and evil, between good coffee and bad coffee. Have you seen the new Tim Hortons commercial for their dark roast coffee? I think it was during the Super Bowl where it was played like every other commercial break and you kind of got tired after a while. Maybe you tuned it out. But it was actually a pretty funny commercial because since 2014, they've been trying to get their dark roast coffee right. 2014, the description was watery with a bitter aftertaste. Sounds enjoyable. 2017, oh, this is much worse. In fact, they just lost out on that year altogether, one guy said. In 2021, of course, because they're promoting this new coffee, they definitely nailed it. It's stronger, it's rich, it's smooth, bold taste, bold coffee taste, as it should be for a dark roast. They're passing judgment. They're discerning between good and bad. 
Now, I did read about a coffee taster with excellent discernment. In his book, The Gospel According to Starbucks, Leonard Sweet tells a story of Ed Fulbert. Fulbert is called what you call a cupper, or in layman's terms, he's a coffee taster. And his discerning taste buds are actually certified by the state of New York. And so refined is his sense of taste for coffee that he can be blindfolded and he can take one sip of coffee and tell you not just that it came from Guatemala, but from what state it came from in Guatemala, at what altitude it was grown, and from what mountain. Misspent childhood, I'm thinking. But you've got to be good at something. And he's obviously exceptional at discernment. And so discernment, yes. Condemnation, no. That's the difference. And Jesus goes even further there. He says, do not judge or you too will be judged. He's just saying that if you condemn or harshly criticize other people, you can in fact expect to be judged. Sky Jethani, in his little book, What If Jesus Was Serious, where he's actually um, uh, expounding on a number of, uh, on, the, on the Sermon on the Mount, he says this, he says, the command to judge not is a warning not to exclude anyone from the reach of God's love or to see ourselves or our group as inherently superior to another. See that? To see ourselves or our group as infinitely or inherently, sorry, superior to another. And then he goes on to say this. I think this will be on the screen. We may disagree with our neighbors, and we may discern another person or group to be wrong. But when this discernment leads us to value our neighbor less, that is when we cross from discernment into judgment, condemnation, and ungodly exclusion. Sadly, this sort of rhetoric fills our culture today and has been applauded by many. It has become acceptable, even among some Christians, to condemn those who hold different religious, cultural, or political beliefs. We are quick to call them enemies and reluctant to love them as neighbors. That's what Jesus is getting at. You can't judge in a way to exclude and to condemn and be reluctant to love them as our neighbors. Because that is the guiding principle. Love your neighbor as yourself. So that's the principle, do not judge. Here is now the explanation in verse 2. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And so Jesus is basically saying, listen, if you judge others harshly, you can expect the same. Condemn others and expect to be condemned. And God will treat us the way we, as followers of Jesus, would treat others. Now that, to me, is incredibly sobering, even a little scary. But here's where we see that Jesus is not saying that we should never judge. There really is a time and a place for it, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But if we are being harshly critical of others we can expect that people might be harshly critical of us. Because we're saying that we set the standard of judgment in a sense. If this is how you dish it out, if this is how you measure it out, that's the way it's going to be measured to you. I think it's in Australia that boomerangs are a big thing, right? You throw them in a certain way and it comes back to you. And that's basically what Jesus is saying is judgment 
in a, in a condemning kind of way is exactly like that. You throw it out and it's going to come back around. And so what he's really calling for here is an incredible amount of humility. We saw this in the, in the kids' story, again, about the recognition of the humility of Jesus. But when we're thinking about judging others, we need to first keep in mind that God has extended his grace to us so that we then in turn extend that grace to others. So it's never about turning a blind eye and ignoring it and just you be you and all that, that kind of stuff. But it's really a call for us to be generous towards one another. You know, Micah 6.8, walk humbly before God. Love mercy, act justly. And I know I reversed those. I did that intentionally. But this idea that we walk humbly with, before God. Why? Because he's the ultimate judge. And someday we were gonna, we're going to stand before him and give an account. And so Jesus is just putting it in that context. Be very careful how you judge. Exercise humility. So then the illustration, verses 3 and 4. He says, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? I love it. Jesus uses obvious hyperbole here. He's exaggerating for effect. And I think it's actually pretty funny too because when you think of the image of having this big beam like stuck out of your eye, right? How can you then see the little speck in someone else's eye? See, we could have the specks and the sawdust and the splinters, but the plank or this beam of wood or the log or however your translation translates the word, it obviously blinds us from seeing someone else's speck clearly. And so really how he's illustrating this is to just say, listen, you have to judge yourself first. Judge yourself first. And so he says there in verse 3, you have to pay attention to the plank in your own eye. Because how can I even see the speck in someone's eye if I have a plank in my own? You see, that's the issue with judging others. Because we're blinded by our own sin. We don't really see the sin in someone else's life properly because we're blinded by the sin in our own lives. I remember... Growing up, you know, I grew up in the church and I grew up going to Sunday school, but I also think I was kind of that kid. You know, the one that the teachers and the Sunday school leader would get together after and say, what are we going to do about Norbert? I mean, that's what they would have called me um, back then. Not that that's changed now, but you know. Um, And um, I was the kid one time who, as my Sunday school teacher was sitting down in her chair, I actually pulled the chair out from under her. She fell on her behind. Sorry, Chris. Um, But I remember in that Sunday school class, you know, what do we do? What do we teach the kids? We teach kids to pray. And so to pray, we, you know, we fold our hands, we bow our head, and we close our eyes. And there might be good reason for all of that. But you know what kids did back then, right? 
is they folded their hands and then they kind of covered their eyes, but they would squint out and they would look at somebody else. And as soon as we finished praying, you'd go, she didn't close her eyes. And the teacher thoughtfully would look at you and go, well, and how did you know that? Don't we do the same as adults? We can be so quick to point out the wrong in someone else's life. Oh, don't you know what a gossip she is? I can't believe, do you know that she said this about this person, then she said this about that person? All the while, you're doing exactly what you're accusing and judging this other person for. I don't know about you, but more often than not, God has used my judgment of someone else to expose the exact same sin in my own life. Whether it's pride or selfishness. I can so easily find the smallest fault when there are even far greater faults in my own life. But isn't that true maybe for all of us? Isn't it so easy to see the faults of others and so difficult to see our own? Why is that? Simply put, I believe it's because self-righteousness blinds us. We all fall short of God's standard. We all fall short of His glory. We all fall short of the standard and we, we sin. And we can't see the other person's sin and somehow miss our own. Now, our our human tendency is to do just that, but Jesus is saying, no, you, 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 you can't do that. Because it's as obvious as the blank, the plank in your eye and the splinter is so much less obvious. So what do we do? We come then to the application. Verse 5, you hypocrite, first Take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. What I want us to notice is that there's a very clear sequence here. It's It's an orderly process. He says, first do this, and then do this. What is the first, and what is the then? The first, I'm just going to call the practice of self examination practice of self-examination. This is where we take the plank out of our own eye. And Jesus is making it very clear that we all have sin in our lives. And our prayer, if not daily, at least regularly, should be, God, show me the plank in my own eye. We should regularly practice personal examination Where we say, does my life, do my attitudes, do my actions, do my thoughts, does my speech, does it align with God's truth? You know, Pastor Adam, as a carpenter, he, he loves to use the plumb line as an illustration for looking at God's word and God's standard and God's truth and seeing where we're out of alignment. And and God in, in Amos, I think it's in chapter 7, he, he actually talks about this plumb line of God's law, and then we align everything else to it. And when we're out of alignment, 
Just like when we're doing construction and we see that the walls aren't straight. When we do personal examination, we hold the plumb line up to our lives, the plumb line of God's word, and we say, does my life line up? Is it straight? Is my life postured to live in obedience to God's word? A few years ago, I think it was actually for our anniversary, Tina got me an Apple Watch. And... Um, I, I had a few other watches that I l- liked wearing. I had one for about 15 years, and then I got a couple of new ones. They're all obsolete. All the batteries are dead now because I actually really like my Apple Watch. And maybe you know what I, you know, maybe you have one of these too and you understand. But did you, like with an Apple Watch, you can actually hit a button and do an ECG, an electric cardiogram test. And it basically is a test on your watch to see if your heart is beating in a uniform pattern. And it's really funny because they're trying to make very clear and distance themselves from any lawsuits and all that, you know, like if there's any abnormalities, please see a doctor. If this is happening, call an ambulance, you know, like they do all these things. But you can actually do an ECG. And I did one yesterday and I'm I'm good, at least at that time. But I was thinking about that and I thought, wouldn't it be amazing if we just had a little app for that? that self-examination app that we could just tap and it showed us those places that were out of alignment. And then if we did see something that was out of alignment, we went to the doctor, to the healer. We went to Jesus. Well, there is no app for that. But we can't come before God and just say, oh God, search my heart. It's the prayer of David in Psalm 139. Search me, God, and know my heart today. And so if we're out of alignment, what do we do? This isn't a sense of morbid introspection because it actually starts with God. Right? It's the worship and the songs that we sang earlier. It's understanding that God is loving and he's merciful and he's kind and he's gracious. And he's not looking to condemn you. But he does have a standard. And so we come before him and say, God, show me where I'm out of alignment. And when he shows you that, we can say, I'm I'm sorry for that. We confess it. We acknowledge it, that it's a part of our lives or our character or attitude. And we ask God for his help in repenting and turning from whatever that sin is and turning to him. And friends, that is the focus of Lent. It's what I shared earlier. And so Lent is this somber time of reflection and it's an invitation over these next 40 days to participate in this where we can regularly come before God and say, oh God, create in me a clean heart, renew a right spirit within me, or purify my heart. Like the refiner's fire that, that, that burns the gold and brings the impurities to the surface so that we can be refined and pure and holy because that's God's intent. And when we come before God and we ask him to do that, I believe that he absolutely does. 
You see, all of this, when we think of taking something out of context, and if we just throw verse 1 around without understanding what's come before it or what even comes after it, we can get it so wrong. But what have we seen so far? Like, even in Matthew 6, in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts. That's the posture that we come with in prayer. God, forgive me. I'm sorry. And what Jesus is getting at is that we first deal with our own stuff. And once we've done this, then we'll be able to see clearly. We examine ourselves first. And so once our sin is dealt with, then we can and in fact must offer sincere help to others. And that is then the practice of speaking the truth in love. Or I might have said admonition and exhortation just to keep the theme going. So this is the second thing. This is now the first do this, then do that. And it is what Colossians 3, 16 talks about, admonish one another with all wisdom. And, and that one another is what we do in the body of Christ. That we're in close, authentic, personal relationship with one another. And I care about your walk with Jesus, and you care about my walk with Jesus. And so what do we do? We admonish and exhort one another. We guide and correct and encourage one another. And we extend forgiveness to one another. That's what we do in the body of Christ. That is Christian community. It's not a bunch of individual lives and oh you know who are you to judge and we 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 push everybody away when we recognize that if we actually have my I'm looking at my thing first but I also have your best interests at heart and you got to know that and again remember the larger context here we pray first father forgive us our debt what as we also forgive our debtors And you could even take the whole Sermon on the Mount and go right back to the Beatitudes and the description of the character of those who are participants in the kingdom of God. People who follow Jesus, they demonstrate aspects of their character in really how they relate to others, right? So when we're poor in spirit, we recognize, our you know, we come with our own humility before God, our own meekness, and blessed are the merciful, right? Blessed are those who mourn. What? They mourn for their sin first. But if that's the kind of person that God is shaping and forming us to be, then it's lived out in all of these other ways that we've been seeing throughout the Sermon on the Mount And no less so today. The call has been to love others radically. For sure your neighbor, but even your enemy. And sometimes the most loving thing we can do for another follower of Jesus is, after we've removed the plank in our own eye, is to go and point out the speck in their eye. And this is throughout Scripture. So again, if you take seven chapter, Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, out of context of the whole of Scripture, you're going to miss this. Because there's many times where Paul instructs in the t- context of Christian community, that's very important, of what, how we interact with one another in these areas. So James 5, 19, verse 20. Listen to this. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. 
Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. You see, and of course, if there's an acknowledgement on their part that, yeah, you know, they're wrong and they ask for forgiveness, there is absolutely the quick offer of forgiveness because that is how Jesus treats us. We acknowledge our sin, he forgives us. Someone else acknowledges their sin, we forgive them. Galatians 6.1 says this, Brothers and sisters, again, the context of Christian community, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. You see, when we're walking in step with the Spirit, we're people who are quick to take the plank out of our own eye so that we can then go and help somebody with a speck in their own eye. And restoration, friends, is always the goal. It's never to put someone in their place. We know it's not to judge or condemn. It is an expression of love and grace and mercy. That's the attitude with which we come to another person when someone is caught in a sin. And Jesus, friends, is simply saying here that the person who helps their brother or a sister with a speck in their own eye without first dealing with the log in their own eye is, what he says, a hypocrite. It's just wrong for a person with a plank in his eye to help a brother remove the speck in his eye. But if he does that first, that practice of self-examination, then we can practice admonition and exhortation. See what I did there? Well, maybe you didn't. If you take notes and you saw it, the pattern will be clear. But anyways, Proverbs 27, verse 6, wounds from a friend can be trusted. I'm not saying that this is ever easy, and that's why I say it has to be a practice, because I think you have to just do it over and over to get it right maybe eventually, but we'll fail at it and we'll stumble upon it. But wounds from a friend, because they can sting sometimes and it can hurt a little bit. But you know what, friends? We need to trust other people to speak into our lives that way because I believe that is ultimately when we can experience a godly community, authentic community, where there's mutual accountability, where there's forgiveness. No judgmental critics. That's not what this is about. But about loving and caring for one another so much that we're going to do our part first and then we can help others as well. And if we're all mutually doing that, we all benefit from others speaking truth into our lives. Friends, this is, I cannot underscore how Um, how important this is. Because we have developed this very individualistic mindset in the church that it's my faith without ever understanding that we have been called out of the world, called together to be a body that is mutually helping one another walk with Jesus. That's why we invite you all the time. We want to know Jesus, walk with Jesus in the company of others, and share Jesus. That's our mission. And I can get so passionate about this because I feel like this is where we miss it. 
You know, I'm, I'm totally gone off my notes, and I got to try to wrap this up. But listen, church discipline rarely works well in the 21st century. And you know why? Because people go, who are you to judge? And we just go off and continue in the sin that maybe somebody was actually trying to help us see. That we were maybe blind to to seeing in our own lives. Because we didn't deal with the plank in our own eye. I hesitate to even go here, but this is why I think this is so important. Because the witness of the church matters. Some of you have perhaps heard the story of a well-known Christian apologist who passed away last May and since his death, stuff has surfaced. Unbelievably horrific and grotesque and evil things. And it just the full report, it's all online. Google it if you want. But the board themselves have basically acknowledged we regret this. We fail this. Why? Because we allowed one individual to be deceptive and control everything around him. And nobody asked questions. That's why it's so important that we would give each other permission to say, listen, you can speak the truth into my life as I can speak the truth into your life. Because isn't that the desire? Isn't our desire to be a people, a godly people, a holy people who walk humbly with God? We love mercy together. We're going to do justice together. But let's acknowledge that we're going to get it wrong sometimes. And we're going to fail. And when we do, guess what? We'll stand up. We'll confess it. We'll acknowledge it. We might need to change some things in our behavior. We might have to do some other practices, whatever. But we can't just turn a blind eye. And that's the sadness for me when it shows up all over CNN and the news and everybody getting picked up. Ah, see? And because he's an apologist speaking for the truth of the word, it just seems to undermine everything. So character matters. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would just help us. Help us to be people who are quick to acknowledge that we have planks in our own eyes. We simply do not see clearly. But Father, when we come before you humbly, and we come humbly before others, and our intent is never to condemn or judge or put down or put in their place, to make fun of, to whatever, we twisted way we think of it. But that we would see that it's good and right for us to be a people who build each other up, who encourage one another, all the more as we see the day approaching. So help us, Jesus. We ask in your name. Amen.